0: Hello there. I'm Jameson King, and you're listening to Master Mindfulness. Welcome to the first episode of Master Mindfulness. I'm so excited to get this show started. And what better way to do that than by talking about something that's near and dear to me? Well, maybe not so dear. It's anxiety. We're talking about anxiety today. And I know a lot of people struggle with this. I'm certainly no exception. In the last few weeks, I've been going through a particularly insidious bout of anxiety. I'd like to share my experience with you today and offer some of my own insights into the reasons why anxiety occurs and how to deal with it. My hope is that by listening to this episode, all of you who struggle with anxiety will be reminded the most important fact to remember. You are not alone in your struggle. I'm going to say that again. You are not alone. And if I'm lucky, or if we're lucky... Maybe some of my thoughts and reflections on anxiety will resonate with you and help you tackle your own challenges. But before we get started talking about anxiety in general, I want to share the stress I've been experiencing the last few weeks, uh, just to give you a little context about what's been going on in my life and how that stress, how those factors influence and contribute to my anxiety. Maybe uh, these are some of the same things that you're going through or maybe you're you know maybe you're not in my situation, but you're taking on those same challenges in your own life. So a little bit about me. I'm a law student. And for our listeners who are not lawyers or law students, let me take a minute to explain what that means. Uh, being a law student means I've taken out a considerable amount of student loans, and I actually live off those loans. My day-to-day environment is highly competitive, both in class and in the job search. I am actually, in fact, still in the middle of my job search for the summer and for after law school. Speaking of you know, class and law school, uh, classes are very demanding you have to be on your game for every single lecture. Uh, It's actually recommended that you read between two and three hours outside of class for every one hour of lecture that you have. So on a given day, I have between uh, an hour and a half and let's say six hours of lecture, depending on what the day is. So that means I'm having to study anywhere between three and four and a half hours outside of that to upwards of, you know, what is that, 12, 18 hours outside of that. Um, At least that's what the American Bar Association recommends. And on top of all that, I have decided for you know, for reasons unknown, to start a podcast, for example, and to do uh, extracurricular work. I, you know, I have a part-time job outside of law school, and I uh, am writing articles for publication. So I guess to sum it up, the thing, the stresses I'm dealing with, the things that cause me anxiety are my worries about money, about grades, about job prospects, both the jobs that I've applied for and the ones I still have to apply for, the ones that, you know, I'm still out there searching for. And on top of all that, I'm beginning to prepare for the bar exam, which is the professional test you need to take as a lawyer in order to be able to practice law legally without getting arrested. So I'd like to think my anxiety is definitely justified. In fairness, I'm not narcissistic enough to think that there are not others uh, out there who have more serious concerns and um, bigger challenges with anxiety than I do. And to those people, I'd like to say, you know, my thoughts and my prayers go out to you. And if there's any topics that you or any of our listeners want to hear us talk about on the show, please reach out to us at mastermindfulnesspodcast at gmail.com. That email is in the description of this episode, but I'm going to give it to you again. It's mastermindfulnesspodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and we have a website. Uh, All the links to that are going to be in the description of this episode. So please take a look and reach out to us because we really do want to hear from you. But now that you have an idea of the stress that I've been under recently... I want to outline what I'd like to talk about in the three points that I want to touch on in this episode. First, I want to talk about the paralytic effects of anxiety. In other words, why can and does anxiety and fear leave us paralyzed? And what are the different ways we become paralyzed by anxiety and fear? Second, I want to talk about how and some of the ways to combat anxiety. Uh, For example, how and when should we employ things like exercise, uh, proper nutrition, eating well, meditation, sleep, and distractions in order to help us address our anxiety and overcome it. Third, I wanna talk about context. In my experience, anxiety and fear often gain power from not having appropriate context or by us being committed too committed, in fact, to a certain point of view. So, get comfortable, and let's get to it. Let's talk about anxiety. So, what is anxiety exactly? Well, the American Psychological Association defines it as, and I'm quoting here, an emotion characterized by feelings of tension, worried thoughts, and physical changes like increased blood pressure. People with anxiety disorders usually have recurring intrusive thoughts or concerns. They may avoid certain situations out of worry. They may also have physical symptoms such as sweating, trembling, dizziness, or a rapid heartbeat. End quote. If these symptoms sound familiar to you, first, I want to encourage you to talk to your doctor about whether or not psychotherapy or another form of anxiety treatment might be right for you. And also, if these symptoms sound familiar, then you'll probably recognize them for what they are. They sound like symptoms and reactions to fear. Now, for all you Star Wars fans out there, you're probably thinking like I am about the quote Yoda said about fear. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. When I first heard that quote, before starting my training in psychology, I thought to myself, okay, so I should just work on never being afraid. Because if I'm not afraid, then I don't have to deal with getting angry over things. And I don't have to suffer. But as I've gotten older, I've discovered that never being afraid is impossible. So let me say that a slightly different way. Fear is normal. Fear is normal. Okay. So with all due respect to the little green Jedi, I'd like to revise his statement a little bit. It's how we respond to fear that can lead us to the dark side. But what does this mean for the non-Star Wars fans listening to this? It means that fear is a natural response to people, places, things, and events that we consider to be threats to our survival. Fear is a primal instinct, and without fear, we are less likely to survive in an environment subject to unexpected changes and variations in routine. In other words, without a certain amount of fear or anxiety, since at this point we're using them interchangeably, our projected lifespans would be considerably shorter. Let me give you an example. Let's say, God forbid, you're walking down the street with your friend and somebody pulls a knife on you, demanding your wallet or purse. Fear in that instance is not just an appropriate response. I would argue it's the correct response. Fear that the person with the knife will stab you or your friend Help you stay alive because out of fear, you give them your wallet or your purse and they go on their way. Now, this isn't a pleasant story, it's not fun to think about, and if you've ever experienced this type of situation, it can certainly leave you feeling traumatized. But because of the fear, you traded something that can be replaced your wallet or your purse and saved something irreplaceable your life, or the life of your friend. Without fear of being stabbed or killed in that situation, you could just as easily have refused to give the mugger your wallet or purse, on principle, and you might try to fight them as a result. So see, fear isn't inherently a bad thing, but uncontrolled fear, the kind of fear that leaves you paralyzed, unable to think clearly or to act, That's bad. From my observations and experience, real survival instinct fear, like the example I gave about being mugged, that type of fear is not as destructive as it often is when we encounter it outside of those life and death situations. That type of fear, the fear of survival or the fear for your life and for your livelihood, when it's not when there's not an immediate situation or event threatening that, is what I'm calling anxiety. I would actually take the American Psychological Association's definition one step further to say that anxiety is fear of injury or loss in non-emergency situations. So, if the mugger situation is an example of fear, then an example of anxiety would be walking down the street being fearful of being mugged in other words anxiety is what happens when you experience worried thoughts and the physical changes that result from those worrying thoughts um in the abstract in your everyday life so if you're getting worked up physically about thinking about things like personal finances your job or your relationships when Neither one of those are pressing concerns. That's anxiety. And again, from my experience and observations, people tend to be more paralyzed by anxiety than by fear. More paralyzed by the apprehension of threat than by the threat itself. Let me give you another example from my own life. When I was about 14... My family and I went on a snowmobiling trip to Wisconsin, Now I'd never snowmobiled before. So I took the snowmobile out for a little test drive. The driveway of where we were staying looked out onto a road. On one side, there was this pretty big hill, and there's a fence on the left. On the other side of the fence, flush up against the road, no fence, no wires, no nothing, was this open field. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna pull out of the driveway, make a cir- you know make a half circle in the road, and drive into this field. Look both ways, don't see a car, pull out into the road, and get stuck on some ice. Lo and behold, a van, a minivan, crest the top of the hill and is coming down straight towards me. I'm stuck in the middle of the road, about to get hit by a minivan. So I'm on the Snowmobile. I'm rocking it back and forth. I'm getting up and like shifting my weight as much as I can to try to get the snowmobile off the ice and onto some traction so I can get out of the way of the minivan. But I'm also, at the same time, getting ready to jump off the snowmobile so that if the van does hit it, it hits the snowmobile without me on the vehicle. Well, I lucked out, and by some miracle, somebody was watching over me, and... I hit just enough traction to speed away. No wreck, no injuries, everybody was fine. But that's fear. Fear in that instance was me looking at the minivan, realizing I'm about to get seriously hurt if I don't do something. So I acted. I kept, you know, doing all the things I could to, uh, to preserve my life, to preserve myself and prevent injury. I was absolutely afraid. I didn't want to get hit by the car. I certainly did not want to get seriously injured or die. But rather than staring at the van like a deer in the headlights as it barreled down towards me, I kept acting. I kept doing everything I could to prevent all those fears about being hurt or death from becoming reality. I didn't stop to think about how I was going to act. I just acted and did what I thought I had to do in order to protect myself. So let's compare that instance to another instance that occurred a few years later. I graduated my undergrad in 2015 and was already accepted to the London School of Economics, LSE for short. Uh, I would eventually go on to get my master's degree in social psychology from LSE. I was no stranger to traveling at that time, still not. Uh, Growing up, I'd travel between... Uh, my parents' house in South Carolina to go visit my biological father in St. Louis. Then later on in my life, we moved from South Carolina to the Midwest. And then from the Midwest, I moved out to D.C. to do my undergrad and then was getting ready to move all the way across the ocean now. So in theory, traveling shouldn't have been that big a deal for me. And yet, as I was preparing to leave for London... I took care of almost everything except the one thing I really needed to stay in London to study. My student visa. I just, I I kept putting it off. And at the time, I wouldn't have been able to tell you why I procrastinated getting my visa. Looking back on that time now, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, experience, and frankly, just a better understanding of myself, I would say that I was afraid. Specifically, I was afraid that I would fail at my master's program that I'd get in and wouldn't measure up, and so I'd be kicked out of the school, kicked out of the country and on top of that it it was daunting to think about moving so far from home and not knowing anyone and not really having a whole lot of resources to draw on if there was an emergency or a quasi emergency in short, these were. Things that I was worried about in the future that might happen. Now, some of those anxieties uh, are understandable. Anxiety about not performing well. Anxiety about being so far from home, from family and friends. And anxiety about being alone are what I would call rational fears. But they're rational only in the sense that they're based on a present feeling and a possible whether or not it's probable, but at least a possible future event that could or would happen. But fears like getting kicked out of the country or not being let in the country in the first place, those are what I would call irrational fears. And they're irrational because they're not grounded in any material fact or possibility. What I'm trying to get here with this distinction is that the rational fear is based on the present feeling. Yes, I am I'm feeling anxious about being, about moving so far away from my family. I'm anxious about doing well in school. But these worst case scenarios take it too far. That becomes irrational. But fortunately, with a good kick in the pants from my parents, I got my act together, got my visa, and eventually graduated with honors from the London School of Economics. So the story does have a happy ending. But what I wanna focus on here is comparing these two events. In both examples, I use the word fear to describe my state of worry. The possibilities and events I was considering were both sources for me to feel afraid. But I would now call what I experienced about moving to London anxiety for one simple reason. The possibilities and events that made me afraid only existed in the uncertain future. With the almost car accident on the snowmobile, the possibility of me getting hit, injured, or killed were, yes, future possibilities, but those possibilities were staring me in the face in that moment in the form of headlights. Quite literally, the situation required that I do something, anything, because not doing something ...meant that any or all of those possibilities would become real in the space of about 30 seconds or less. In the student visa case, however, inaction was possible. The time gaps between my graduation, acceptance into LSE, and when I needed to get the visa... ...were such that I did not have to take immediate action. As a result, I allowed myself to become distracted by working as a bouncer at a bar as a research assistant, and by taking summer classes. Simply put, I was able to run away from and avoid the decisions and actions that were causing me anxiety. That is, until I couldn't avoid them any longer. I was paralyzed and chose not to act because by not acting, by not working to get that visa, I wouldn't actually have to deal with any of the possible negative outcomes I was afraid of such as not performing well, of being forced to leave the program that I really wanted to be at, and of being alone and far from home. By not actively pursuing my visa, I would not have been able to go to London and thus not had to deal with any of those possibilities. It was a cop-out. It was like saying, I could have accomplished all of this stuff, but because I didn't get my visa, I didn't get the chance to prove that. But here's where the situation gets tricky. Right now, you might be asking yourself if I even wanted to go to the London School of Economics at all. My parents certainly asked me that question repeatedly. And the answer is the same then as it is now. A resounding yes. I absolutely wanted to go to LSE. I wanted to go not just because of the prestige the school offered, and not just because I was going to be studying a subject that I'm truly passionate about, but because of a promise that I had made to myself earlier when I had studied abroad before in the United Kingdom. I promised myself I would go back, and by going to LSE or having the opportunity to go to LSE, I was in a position to fulfill the promise I made to myself. It was like a dream come true. I really could not have asked for more. So why did I let my anxiety paralyze me? Why do any of us let our anxiety paralyze us? It was and is because we feed that anxiety. We allow the anxiety to grow by feeding it our attention and our concentration until it becomes this all-consuming monster. If you've ever seen uh, or heard of the show Little Shop of Horrors, it's kind of similar to that. And for those of you who haven't seen it, let me give you a quick little summary. There's this wallflower botanist named Seymour who works in a flower shop. Comes across this really weird, rare-looking Venus flytrap thing. Turns out that this Venus flytrap is an alien and it feeds off of blood and raw meat. So Seymour keeps feeding it its own, his own blood and then eventually starts killing people to feed the plant because he's getting something out of it. He's getting what he wants, the, the good feelings of being recognized for, uh, for having this strange and exotic plant. But eventually, by the end of the show, uh, the plant turns on Seymour, and, it's trying, and it tries to eat him, and it tries to eat everything he cares about, and it just becomes so overwhelmingly big and monstrous that he has to kill it. But like Seymour trying to face that plant, uh, it's kind of the same with us trying to face our anxiety after we keep feeding it. When we try to escape the anxiety after feeding it our concentration and our attention for so long, that confrontation looks so daunting and intimidating that rather than confronting anxiety, we avoid it. Although we shouldn't avoid it, but avoiding it just seems easier avoiding anxiety can take any form or almost any form binge watching tv playing video games for hours on end reading gardening exercising shopping quite literally any activity that we engage in to the detriment of the other responsibilities we have in our lives whether that's the responsibilities at work to our families or to ourselves so for example if you're you know, get stuck binge-watching a TV show for hours on end and you're not doing your laundry, changing your sheets, or showering, for example. That's a problem. That's an example of what I'm talking about. We allow ourselves to become so focused on these less significant problems or activities so that we don't have to confront the monstrous fear That we've fed into and created for weeks, months, or in some cases years. Ultimately, whether we are avoiding our anxiety by overwhelming ourselves with work or meaningless tasks, or just simply giving up and not pursuing what it is we really want because we're too afraid of losing or not fulfilling our dream, it's all the same thing. Avoidance, in whatever form it takes, is simply a short-term way of soothing our anxieties At the expense of continuing to let that anxiety grow, and ultimately that anxiety becomes the controlling factor, the thing that controls and governs how we live our lives, instead of us taking ownership of our own lives day to day and determining how we live and what we're going to do. So that raises the question, how do we engage with and deal with anxiety? Well, We're going to take a short break now, give you a chance to digest what we've been talking about so far, and when we come back from the break, we're going to talk both about how we deal with anxiety and about how to shift our point of view and look at the whole context of anxiety so that it doesn't seem so overwhelming to confront it. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back. Welcome back and thanks for staying with us. As we get into the second part of our episode today, we're going to talk about how we deal with anxiety and how to change our points of view to better equip ourselves and better prepare ourselves to confront anxiety. How we deal with anxiety depends on many different factors, our past habits, our personality inclinations and what the anxiety itself is centered on. What, if any, time constraints are involved, and our personal resources are just a few of the main ones. But more important than the specific methods we use to deal with our anxiety is the disposition, or point of view, from which we choose to deal with and address our anxiety. And when I say deal with or address anxiety, I am specifically not referring to avoiding our anxiety. Avoidance is not dealing with or addressing anxiety. It is, by its very definition, not dealing with or addressing an issue. So in this section, rather than talking more about avoidance, we'll talk about the different ways of confronting anxiety that will make it easier and less daunting to do so. One way people deal with anxiety, or strong emotions in general, is exercise. When I'm in my head, as my mom calls it, she suggests I go on a run or go to the gym. She used to regularly run herself and has encouraged me to run throughout my life. To be honest, I don't like going running, at least in the sense that I'd much rather be sitting on the couch than going running. But... I have never denied and cannot deny that when I do go running, after I'm done, both my body and my mind feel so much better than when I started. And that feeling of release and euphoria that comes at the end of a run is something that you, you just don't get from sitting down reading for a couple hours. But when it comes to exercise, I found that it doesn't, quote, Unquote, cure me of my anxiety. Rather, exercise helps relieve me of excess adrenaline and energy that would otherwise be devoted to obsessing over whatever it is I'm anxious about. In that sense, exercise is an important part of dealing with anxiety. Regular exercise, whether it's strenuous or mild, is important for mental health because it improves our serotonin uptake which makes us feel happier or at least less depressed and wearing out our bodies exhausting the metabolic reserves the mind is then forced to become more present in the moment rather than concerning itself with fluid and uncertain future possibilities essentially it's like you know pushing a machine to its absolute limit it, it doesn't have the excess resources to do other things It has to be finely tuned in order to reach one certain goal or go on one certain path. And that's essentially what you're doing with exercise. You're fine-tuning your body and limiting the excess resources, trimming off the, the, the parts that aren't necessary for what it is you're trying to achieve. In this case, what you're trying to achieve is a healthier and happier way of life. But equally as important as exercise is eating well, both in terms of quality and quantity. When I was in college, I was on the men's rowing team. We worked out twice a day, and between the start of my freshman year to the end of my freshman year, I went from about 190 pounds to around 175. And by the time I graduated college, I was actually down to like 165 pounds. Between my workouts and youthful metabolism, I was able to eat junk. I mean, absolute junk. Soda, Cheetos, Twizzlers, and orange chicken, pizza, and beer. You name it, it was horrible. I did not have good eating habits in college. I could eat almost anything I wanted, though. Yet, during those same four years, my anxiety and depression grew and was difficult to deal with. I had a harder time... Uh, getting a grasp on it. And so I would, you know, continue to eat my junk and I'd exercise, but none of it really made me feel better. It wasn't until recently that I realized how big of a difference our diets make in our mental lives. Eating whole grains, higher proteins, and a lot more fresh fruits, vegetables, and definitely more water make me personally feel physically better. I feel less bloated, less heavy, and more energized. While the challenges that come from healthy eating are a topic we can address and will address in another episode, I cannot emphasize enough that eating healthy foods works in conjunction with regular exercise to transform our bodies, not just aesthetically, but functionally as well. Now that I've been eating healthier and am exercising, I find that my mind is a lot clearer when it comes to how I'm able to tackle problems, how I'm able to distribute my mental resources to take care of the different aspects of my life, both myself personally, my schoolwork, my job, my relationships, and even gives me the energy and time to do this podcast. it is clear that the body and the mind are inexorably linked. If the body is not properly cared for, the mind cannot flourish. So if we do not exercise and eat healthy, then our minds cannot reach their potential. But the same is true then the other way around. And I can find no better proof of this than when I cannot bring myself to exercise when I'm anxious. What I'm trying to get at here is as much as we have to take care of the body in order to take care of the mind, we also have to take care of our minds to take care of our bodies. Let me give you an example. There are times where I'm at the gym, particularly when I'm jogging, rowing, or doing yoga, that I can't bring my mind into focus on the workout. No matter what I do, what music I listen to or don't, what speed I go at, or where I'm exercising, inside, outside, gym, my apartment, I become distracted, and my ability to exercise diminishes dramatically. I have yet to find a way to push through those barriers by sheer force of will. And this is where I bring in a more traditional mindfulness practice, meditation. I know many people who meditate in one form or another, Some are devoutly religious and pray regularly. Others take a more agnostic approach and incorporate a more clinical approach to meditation. For me, I've developed a mixed meditation practice that incorporates aspects of several religions and, of course, psychology. In our next episode, we can delve more deeply into the topic and mechanics of meditation. For the purposes of dealing with anxiety, however and in this episode, suffice it to say that an important part of dealing with anxiety is exercising mental discipline. And mental discipline, one of the ways that can be achieved, is through meditation. I first encountered uh, this type of mental discipline when I started practicing karate in the late 90s, early 2000s. My teacher, let's call her Sensei V, was a formidable woman. She was intimidating, but also patient. What I remember most about her instruction was that she instilled forced patience into me. Growing up, I struggled constantly going back and forth between my family, including my mom, my dad, my siblings, and the isolation and abuse I experienced when I went to visit my biological father and his family. Because of this constant back and forth being uprooted from a normal life, I developed deep feelings of anger, powerlessness, and inferiority. But under Sensei V's instruction, I was introduced to the practice of overcoming those emotions and learning how to regulate not only just how I expressed those emotions, but when I expressed those emotions. As I got older and returned to karate practice in college, I had the great fortune to have a traditional karate instructor. We'll call him Sensei H. Now, Sensei H, in his stoic samurai-like way, taught me about perfection. By that point in my training, I knew and practiced self-control of my emotions, but what I learned from Sensei H was that this is only the first step of self-mastery. And mental discipline the next step for me at least was to learn acceptance of myself now this is a lesson and something that sensei v also taught or tried to teach me but i wasn't ready to learn it at that time through my training with sensei h i came to terms with the fact that i will never achieve perfection because no one will ever achieve perfection In other words, it's not something that's deficient in me. I'm not inherently deficient, but rather this aspirational goal of being perfect is something entirely unattainable by everyone, every member of the human species. It's only been in the last three or four years, though, that I have found a second part to that lesson. The second, and arguably the more important part of that lesson in acceptance is this just because we will never achieve perfection does not mean we have permission to stop seeking perfection for example the japanese have a practice called kintsugi kintsugi is the process of fixing broken pottery with gold or other valuable metals the pottery pieces then become unique beautiful and more valuable because of the addition of this gold or whatever precious metal is used to repair them. While the piece itself might not be perfect in the stereotypical sense or in the meaning that the piece of pottery is untarnished, the pottery is arguably better and more valuable than it was before the break. I share these lessons with you for two reasons. First, I want to illustrate that mindfulness and mental discipline, like physical conditioning, comes only with time, practice, and patience. Constant reflection and introspection can lead us to new discoveries and lessons we thought we'd already learned years prior. I mean, there are times where I go back and reread books and listen to songs I have heard a thousand times and will hear something or read something a little new or read you know read something a different way or hear a counter melody that I that I might not have heard before the point is is that experience repetition allow us to see a whole picture a more complete image of what is trying to be communicated the the second reason I share these lessons with you is that Part of what we get out of any mindfulness or meditation practice depends greatly upon our point of view. If we approach meditation with a closed mind, expecting it not to be productive at all, that will become a self-fulfilling prophecy because we will resist any attempt to gain insight. Alternatively, if we approach meditation expecting to unlock the secrets of the universe and become the next Buddha, we will be inherently disappointed because enlightenment and self-actualization doesn't happen through meditation alone, and it certainly doesn't happen overnight. Instead, I've learned to approach meditation without expectation. Meditating without expectation allows me to process and confront my anxiety without pressure to achieve a specific goal or outcome, or to act or think a certain way. By meditating in this way, I practice accepting myself as I am at any given moment. And I can carry that acceptance with me in my intellectual pursuits, both at work and at school. And I also take that with me into physical exercise. This level of acceptance that I give myself, and it is a gift that you give yourself, allows me to become all the more successful. Any endeavor that I do because all I have to do is simply acknowledge where I am in the moment, what my strengths are, what I need to work on in that moment, and take it as it is without the expectations of, well, I was better at listening or better at understanding something yesterday than I am today. But again, we'll go more into what meditation is and the mechanics of meditation in our next episode. But the next thing I want to talk about and the last thing I really want to talk about in this episode today is context and points of view. In the first part of this podcast, we talked about what anxiety is. We defined the beast of anxiety so we could better understand it. In the first part of this podcast, we talked about what anxiety is. We defined the beast of anxiety so we could better understand it. In the second part, we talked about ways to deal with anxiety. We found that there is no single method to tame the beast. Rather, we have to use a wide variety of skills and endeavors combined with one another to achieve the goal of taming anxiety. But in this last part... I want to unpack that metaphor of taming the beast, taming anxiety, and discuss why I choose to approach anxiety from this specific point of view. I titled this episode Taming Anxiety specifically because the word taming, or to tame, has a specific meaning. To tame something is to reduce it from a state of native wildness, especially so as to be tractable and useful to humans. Taming is to make something docile and submissive, to make it lack spirit, zest, interest, or the capacity to excite. At least, that's what the dictionary definition of tame is. Notice that taming is not the same thing as controlling. You cannot control anxiety in the same way that you control a car. In a car, you can command the speed, the direction... Uh, you can control a little bit the nature of the car. But we don't command anxiety. We do not command the speed, direction, nature, or the existence of our anxiety. If that is how we choose to approach our anxiety or our fear, if we choose to approach it like we're going to control it, we're going to dominate it, we cannot help but be disappointed. In other words... I cannot will my anxiety out of existence simply because I wish to do so. No amount of mental strength, prowess, physical strength, or spiritual devotion can or will change that fact. Bottom line, the anxiety is going to be there. It's going to come up. We cannot help but just deal with the fact that it is going to exist in our life. But... If we approach dealing with our anxiety like we are taming a dog or a wild horse, then we have a better chance of successfully managing the role of anxiety in our lives. In taming an animal, like a dog for example, we learn how that animal thinks and reacts to the world and to our commands and desires. Taming an animal is as much changing the way we ourselves behave In the presence of that animal and behave in response to that animal as it is getting the animal to obey our commands over time as we're taming an animal we cultivate an understanding and trust with that animal and it obeys our commands more and more yet the animal still maintains its own will so there are times where even the best trained dog is not going to listen to a command because It's still going to do what it wants. It still has its own nature separate from ours. Our relationship with anxiety is much the same way. We can discipline the way we think about anxiety much like we would an animal. Treating our anxiety like an animal is not an absurd concept because, as we said earlier, anxiety is a type of fear, and fear is a survival tool that is part of our most basic animalistic instincts. If we treat our anxiety like it possesses an animalistic mind, we can master how it affects our daily lives. Animals, including humans, need their basic needs met if they are going to be satisfied and placated. In other words, we need food, water, shelter. In the case of humans, we need clothing. Uh, And for modern people, we need occupations. We need a purpose. But what are the basic needs of our anxiety? Well, at its most basic level, our anxiety simply needs attention. We feel anxious because we are concerned that we have not given enough attention to something in our lives, something that could potentially be a threat to us. But rather than trying to starve our anxiety of the attention it needs, only to have that anxiety overindulge its hunger when it inevitably forces itself upon our conscious mind, we should, instead, feed it the attention it deserves. But how do we know what amount of attention our anxiety deserves? This is where our point of view comes into play. Out of context, even the silliest anxieties, such as obsessing over running a 10-minute mile or less, can seem vitally important But a shift in our point of view can make that anxiety seem far less important. If I shift the focus of my thoughts to concentrate on how I am improving my mile time, then my current mile time becomes less important and the anxiety about lowering it immediately diminishes. Notice I say diminishes. It's not necessarily going to disappear, but the impact that it has on us and our day-to-day focus diminishes, it decreases. To take it one step further, if I change my point of view to focus on the fact that I am not a professional athlete and have no desire to become one, the anxiety about my mile time, it becomes nearly insignificant. If not, wholly or mostly disappears. So what I want to focus on here is that it really depends on What approach you're bringing here? What is your goal? Because if you are anxious about something that is deeply important to you, for example, if you are a family-oriented person and you are having a strained relationship with a parent or a child or an extended relative, that can weigh heavily on you. And if you are a truly family-oriented person, that... That is a more serious anxiety for you. However, if you are not a family-oriented person, maybe a strained relationship with a relative is not going to be as big of an anxiety for you. It's not that there's a difference in the strained relationship necessarily. It's the importance that that strain weighs on us. It's how central that anxiety is and that strain is on our lives. I have a actually a more substantial example in my life right now. As a law student, I'm looking for a summer job in my desired legal practice area. As of yet, I have not signed an employment contract for the summer. This is something I am incredibly anxious about. It keeps me up at night sometimes. In all honesty, there are times where you know, this anxiety keeps me from focusing on things that I should and the things that I want to focus on in my life. But when that anxiety starts to feel overwhelming, I look at the spreadsheet I made to track all my job applications. And what I notice is I've applied to quite a few jobs. Doing this, looking at the spreadsheet, helps me shift my point of view. Instead of dwelling on the fact that I haven't yet signed an employment contract, I begin to focus more on the process of applying to jobs. I look at the number of applications I've sent so far, which companies, firms, and locations those applications went to. I look at the dates I last followed up on those applications and figure out which new applications I should send and which applications to follow up on. This simply qualified but not so easily achieved shift in my point of view makes a great deal of difference. Instead of viewing myself as unemployed, I think of myself as in the job market or actively job hunting. Any and all of these descriptions are true, but by focusing on the points of view that reflect the things I can control and change right now, today, in this moment, I show my anxiety its appropriate place in my life as a reminder, as a guide, but not as a primary driving force for my actions. This method of taming anxiety is gentle, but powerful. It takes the emphasis off of wrestling control away from anxiety, a struggle that is inevitably doomed to fail because anxiety is a part of who we are as humans. And it places that focus and makes an emphasis on balancing the role of anxiety. It's accepting that anxiety is a part of who I am and assigning it a place where it belongs. Wrestling with anxiety is wrestling with ourselves. The more we fight it, the more tired we become, and yet the anxiety remains. And we have only weakened ourselves to its influence in the process of wrestling it. By putting our efforts in changing how and what We see when we confront our anxiety, we are really changing and training our minds, strengthening them to confront anxiety, giving ourselves what we need, giving ourselves the tools that we need to stop anxiety from badgering us. Well, we've covered quite a lot in this episode of Master Mindfulness. It's been a bit of a whirlwind inauguration, but I do hope you've enjoyed it. More importantly, I hope you found at least one thing in this episode that you can take with you as you continue to work towards your own mastery of mindfulness. So thank you for listening. Make sure you subscribe to the latest updates and get the newest episodes as they are released. And you can find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soon, Apple Podcast. Be sure to check out our website at mastermindfulness.weebly.com for more articles and links on mindfulness and mental health. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So, until next time, be healthy, be safe, and be mindful. I'm Jameson King, and this is Master Mindfulness.